0: Father, it's our privilege to be in the Word. and It's our privilege to be before You tonight and in the presence of Your Spirit. It's a privilege, Father, to have the counsel of Your Word and the fellowship and the prayer of others in the faith. These are privileges, Father, things we have been given by grace. And so, Father, we thank You and praise You that You have brought these things to us by no merit of our own, but out of the goodness of Your heart and out of Your grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, as well, that as we study in Isaiah, we can be brought to uh, to a reminder of all that is awaiting us, that there is so much more ahead of us than has been behind, and that eternity, Father, is right around the corner. Thank you, Lord, that we are given the opportunity to study it in such detail even now so that we might be prepared for it, and we might look for it eagerly. Thank you, Father, for that blessing. And may we go into the Word tonight, Father, under your counsel and guidance. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, chapter 30, Judah, on the brink of God's plowing of their field, they entered into a covenant with Egypt in Isaiah's day. They did it because they were fearful of the Assyrians. And Isaiah warned them not to take that step, but rather to sit still and wait on the Lord, knowing that the Assyrians were there under his decree and they refused to do it. Hezekiah sought a covenant with Egypt. So God, in response, pronounces a coming judgment upon that nation in Isaiah's day, a time when Assyria would be given the impetus by God to siege the city of Jerusalem proper and in that siege cause even greater devastation to the nation of Judah. But as the parable in chapter 28 taught us, with every plowing comes an end eventually, which results then in sowing and then harvest. And in other words, God does not bring this judgment upon Israel to their destruction. He's bringing it only for a time. And ultimately, this message of judgment is tempered with a moment of redemption. Now, that's been the overview, the pattern, the parable that set up the last series of chapters, which have become part of a segment of Isaiah we call the Book of Woes. Woes pronounced against Israel prim- primarily, the Jews primarily, in Judah and extended at times to others, including Assyria, that period of, of that part of the book we're still smack dab in the middle of. It's going to give way here in a couple of chapters to an accounting of how this plays out historically in the nation of Judah with King Hezekiah and the Assyrians and uh, the commander of their army at the gates of, of Jerusalem. You may know that story if you've studied some of, of the history here. We're not quite there yet, though. There's Two or three more chapters here of woes that lead us into that period of history. Beginning in chapter 30, now we left off in the middle and at a juncture in that chapter, right at 30, verse 18. Up until this point, we've seen the woes continuing and Israel still, Judah particularly, still under condemnation for their apostasy. But remember what else Isaiah has been doing, which it's really something only Isaiah can do in light of his skill. He weaves in a discussion of a future event. Remember all this, of course. So while the immediate concerns are Hezekiah and Judah of his day and Assyria and so on, in the midst of all their circumstances, Isaiah has been also talking about a future event in which many of the same things happen a second time, but with different actors. The future event was, of course, the nation of Israel regathered in tribulation. Their leadership in that day unnamed is a future future set of leaders who engage in similar behavior. They enter into a covenant with an enemy. In that future day, it will be the Antichrist. And that covenant gives them a limited opportunity to enjoy freedom on their temple mount. But ultimately, he betrays that covenant and he begins to take siege against them, ultimately coming to a very similar moment when their armies of the Antichrist are around the city of Jerusalem in the future day. And much like is the case here in this day, All seems lost until there is a moment of redemption, until the plowing, as the parable goes, ends and the sowing and the harvest begins. So that weaving continues again tonight. So he is still talking primarily about the near term events of Hezekiah. But of course, we are going to continue looking for any reference to the future events of the Antichrist in the last days. Look in verse 18 as we see that plowing begin to turn back to a period of sowing and reaping. He says in verse 18, Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And you will defile the graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. Then he will give you rain for the seed which you sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground. And it will be rich and plenteous on that day. Your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also, the oxen and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of His people and heals the bruise He has inflicted. All right, by now, you should all be very familiar with some of the themes here, right? We started this whole study... Uh, recounting five major themes in the book of Isaiah and said up front, he repeats these and he comes back to these. And that rep- repetition is, is good because it helps us understand when we're seeing certain things, we know what we're seeing here. For example, you're seeing a description of what the millennium kingdom, millennial kingdom, Christ returned and the nation of Israel restored in their land and so on. We've covered this obviously many times. And that familiarity means we are not going to delve at length in every single verse Uh, Many of them are simply self-explanatory. Let me just list some of the details and you'll see that for yourself. He mentions in this order, going through the text, no more weeping, the Lord answering the cry of Israel, no longer hiding himself, your eyes will see him, verse 20. He, you will walk in His ways perfectly, which means sinlessly. This goes back to what we taught a few chapters ago when we learned that not a single Jew enters the millennial kingdom without having already been moved into a resurrected, incorruptible body. There's no natural bodies in the Jewish nation. They all come in fully resurrected and sinless and eternal. Then he goes further. No more idols, verse 22. So there are no longer any competition for their... Uh, Uh, allegiance to the Lord they receive a harvest of plenty there's the seed motif again this is him referring to the fact that the plowing has ended and there is going to be restoration no darkness and the light of the world is far brighter from God's presence Israel healed all of these signs are of the Lord's return and Israel's healing and restoration but did you notice what time this is and when does this take place the millennial kingdom Understand, we've been talking here in the context of Hezekiah, right? And Israel in that day, or Judah specifically. Where these promises are ultimately fulfilled, in other words, is not in their day. There is a form of redemption, a kind of rescue that takes place in the time of Hezekiah. That's what we'll study in chapter 37 when we get there. The angel of the Lord going out into the camp of the Assyrians and destroying them all in a moment, right? We know that's going to happen. And that is certainly a rescue. But the ultimate fulfillment of all of Isaiah's words here, we know by the context that awaits the millennial kingdom. So it would appear that even though there is a moment of restoration or or redemption of of some sort, it's not the full measure that God has intended. He's waiting for a future moment to bring that to Israel. And And as that waiting continues, there is still yet more judgment to take place. That's the inevitable conclusion we're drawn to. There is, after all, the judgment of A.D. 70 and the scattering, and even before that, the Babylonian captivity. And after A.D. 70, we still have this present period of Israel hardened and outside the the family of God, by and large, but for a remnant. And then, of course, in the future from even today, we still have the tribulation, which is the time of Jacob's troubles. So there is still plenty of judgment yet to happen before the full measure of redemption takes place for Israel. Now, in conjunction with this promise of a future redemption we also know that God's judgment will fall on the nations that have assembled against Israel to destroy them in that time and Isaiah has something to say for them as well in verse 27 he says behold the name of the Lord comes from a remote place burning in his anger and dense is his smoke his lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire his breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the people the bridle which leads to ruin. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival, the gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute, to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Now, this passage itself is easy enough to understand so long as you leave it in its immediate context. Otherwise, it starts to become confusing. And what is the immediate context? The immediate context is in conjunction with the moment we just saw, the millennial kingdom. So, in other words, you might at first look at this and say, well, he's pronouncing what God is preparing to do to the armies of Assyria when they come against Hezekiah. Maybe this is referring to how God will fight against those armies. But the problem is, look at some of the details, it goes beyond that moment. This is, in fact, not that judgment, but this is God's judgment against the nations that arise Against Israel in the last days, in the tribulation time. Again, keeping in context with the millennial. How do I know that? I mean, how do you know he's not just talking here about the specific judgment against Assyria? What do you see in the text that suggests it's something connected to the millennial kingdom? To shake the nations. Goy, that's a plural. There's there's only a single nation involved in the destruction at at the time that Assyria comes against Jerusalem. But here we're talking about a time in which God is judging multiple nations. That puts us at a different context because there was only one nation involved in Assyria's day. And again, in the context of this chapter, he's been talking about the millennial. It makes sense he's still in that timeline, still at that point in time. Look at verse 29. There's an interesting comment in verse 29. He says, they will have a song that they will sing as in the night of the festival. This is a phrase that is generally accepted to refer to Passover because there's only one festival in Jewish tradition that is a night memorializing a night event, the night of Passover. And uh, as a result in tradition, there's songs or hymns sung quite commonly in the Passover celebration. And this is a reference to them singing in that Passover night. You can even see an example of Jesus doing this, for example, in Matthew 26, uh, verse 30, as the disciples are celebrating the Passover on what we now call the Last Supper, they are referenced in Matthew twenty-six thirty as singing hymns as a part of that event. And so when Isaiah here refers to them singing songs as in the night when you keep the festival, he's saying you will be joyous singing like you did in the Passover celebration. And the very fact that he's connecting Passover to this moment suggests that they're seeing the fulfillment of Passover, which we know is in Christ coming back and in his fulfillment, finishing that meal, as we studied here, if you remember, in Luke. So it would seem to draw the two even closer together. And then Isaiah goes and weaves another reference of the future with a reference of present-day judgment. In 27 through 29, as we said, the focus is on judgment against the nations of the tribulation. And now in verses 30 through 33, he takes that idea of judgment for the oppressors And moves it now into present day. And he begins to talk about Assyria now. In verse 30. And the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard. And the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger. And in the flame of a consuming fire. In cloudburst, downpour and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified. When he strikes with the rod. And every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him. Will be with the music of tambourines and lyres. And in battles brandishing weapons, he will fight them. For Topheth has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. Verse 33 is a great verse, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, Here we see that in verse 28, he was referencing nations, and now he's referencing specifically a deliverance against one nation, that being Assyria. So again, he's done this thing he does typically. He weaves together future and present day. If you read it fast, you'd never see the break. More unlikely you'd notice it. Knowing he's been doing this, we keep watching for it and sure enough we find it time and again. Uh, Moving from that point forward, verses 32-33 reference the way Assyria is defeated in battle. And again, it's going forward and from here to talk about it because it's in chapter 37. But we know that as we've looked at it already, they're going to be consumed by the angel of the Lord in a sudden moment, and it's going to be this kind of a destruction. But in verse 33, there's some very interesting detail in there that is worth pausing on. The word uh, in, in verse 33 at the beginning, there, topheth, for topheth has long been ready. It literally is, been, in Hebrew, it's not a, pre- a proper name in Hebrew. It's actually just a common noun. It means a burning place. It's being capitalized in my text. I don't know if it is in yours as well. That's because the nature of its use in this verse seems to suggest it's a location. What place would you imagine this is describing? A burning place. Hell, right? The word Topheth is a name used for one geographic place in the nation of Israel. It was a name used in Isaiah's day to describe one particular location in the the nation. And it was the Valley of Hinnom. So the Valley of Hinnom, which is a valley on the south side of Jerusalem, was also called Topheth. The way it got that name, the name Burning Place, was that this was the valley in which the evil kings of, of Judah had offered human sacrifice to Molech, to the pagan god Molech. Human sacrifice, children. And they would burn those bodies. Uh, it was a burned sacrifice. And it was also a place where garbage was taken and burned, commonly. And so the combination of burning garbage and burning human remains had led the Jews in Jerusalem to associate the valley with hell. So it became known as Topheth, the burning place. And then later, the valley of Henan in Hebrew is Gehenan. And Gehenan in the Hebrew has become sort of the word we have transliterated into hell. When you go through Hebrew to Greek and then on to English, you eventually get hell. And so what we're saying is the place, the, the imagery of what hell is is imagery that finds its root in the experience of Jews living in Jerusalem, looking out over the wall and seeing burning human remains and refuse in a valley. And because garbage is constantly being added to the pile, the flame never really goes out because its whole point is to burn up the trash. You don't want it to go out. And with the regularity of trash dump, there was always enough fuel to keep it burning. So it was a never-ending burning pit. So what better imagery than that to convey what hell must be like? So the name became synonymous. Isaiah is using that here, but he's using it in a very interesting way. He says, this place has long been prepared for the king of Assyria. Now, why is the king here being brought into this? What what was the king's mistake? You remember going back many chapters now? How did Assyria get involved in all of this to begin with? God moved them to come down against who? Who was the original target? The Northern Kingdom of Israel was the intended target for Assyria in judgment for what they had done as the apostate nation. Remember, they were never a legitimate part of Israel. The people who went off and formed the Northern Kingdom were rebellious. They tried to take the temple and relocate it, so to speak, to Samaria. They set up a new priesthood. They set up a, a, a distorted version of the Torah as their law. It was all bastardized. It was all false. It was never accepted by God. It was always apostate. The only true remaining Jews were in the southern kingdom from the beginning. At some point, God, in his wrath, decided he had enough of the northern kingdom, and that's when he called Assyria down. Remember, he said he whistled to them. You remember those references? What did they do wrong? What did Assyria do wrong? In, ref- in other words, they obeyed God, if you will. They followed down into the northern kingdom. What did they do wrong after that? They went beyond the borders, and they decided they preferred Judah and beyond, which was never a part of their commissioning, so to speak, from the Lord. So now that they're marauding around in the nation of Judah, they actually this is a classic example of Romans 8.28. Though they were there against God's decree, he turned it to good in the sense that he put it to work, using it to chasten the Jewish people of Judah who were doing their own things wrong. But again, it was not to destroy them, because remember what we said? We're still several centuries away from Christ being born in Bethlehem and living in Judah and dying in Jerusalem. He can't have all of that disappear before his son is on the earth. So he has no intent here to destroy Judah short of the plan that he has for his son. But he needs to chasten them. So he allowed Assyria to have their way in the land for a while. Now that Judah has gone one step further into sin and created this covenant with Egypt, He said, fine, I'll use this marauding army one more time. I'll bring them up to your neck. But he still has the obligation to bring judgment against that nation for their original offense of stepping into the land of Judah. Even though he's put it to good, that doesn't negate or or mitigate their sin in coming into the land in the first place. Just because God can turn our sin to good doesn't mean there won't be consequences for that sin in some form at some point. In our case, by faith, we don't suffer an ultimate consequence eternally. But that isn't to say he won't, in some cases, allow the natural consequence of sin to play out in our lives in the meantime. He can do both. He can bring judgment and he can turn it to good. And here we see him doing both. So to the king, he says, to the king of Syria, this burning place has been prepared for you from long ago. But the word long in Hebrew is not actually the word long, meaning in English here they've used the word long, but that's not what the Hebrew word is. The Hebrew word is literally yesterday. Yesterday. Now, it's a euphemism, right? It's been prepared since yesterday, meaning since the beginning is the term. And that's why the English takes it where it does. But what's interesting about the word yesterday here is the way that rabbinical tradition has played on that word, specifically from this verse. Rabbinical tradition, the rabbis had taken this verse to mean that hell was created on the second day of creation. In In other words, though scripture never tells us when hell was created, we know it had to be. It's a part of creation and as a place, as an as a location, even if it's not one we see around us today, it had to have been created at some point. So the supposition is, when did God get around to creating hell? The rabbis had taught that the reference to yesterday means it could not have been created on the first day of creation because there was no yesterday to the first day of creation. So the first day that had a yesterday was the second day of creation. So that must be the day that the hell was created. That's just an interesting supposition, but they add one more piece to it. They say this is why the second day of creation is the only day in which God never pronounces anything good. And sure enough, there is only that day in the seven that has no good associated with it in the description of creation. Now, it's a good example of one thing, if nothing else, of how rabbinical tradition and examination of the scriptures often arrives at very curious, very Interesting conclusions, but yet without any scriptural basis to support it, except these kinds of quirky little pieces that are pulled out of the text. I can't say for sure they're wrong, of course, but I really wouldn't want to rest on their line of analysis for teaching that hell was created on the second day. But it is an interesting way of putting you know, thoughts together from places in the Bible. I, I, I bring this out just to show you that what Isaiah talked about earlier when he said you teach as the doctrines of God, the traditions of men, it's this kind of stuff that we're talking about. When somebody wanted to know what this verse meant, they opened up Rabbi so-and-so's commentary, the rabbinical midrash on this part of Isaiah, and they would find this teaching. And they would go out from that, understanding that this whole thing is teaching that hell was created on the second day. Without necessarily understanding its real meaning, that it's talking about how God was going to judge Assyria. You know that's the, that's the problem with looking past the text and trying to find some kind of nugget that's too deep, if you will. Now, having said all that, maybe they're right. We'll find out one day. Now, in the final warning to Israel against seeking protection from Egypt, Isaiah writes chapter 31. And chapter 31, we can go through very quickly, in large part because it is playing on a familiar theme here. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words. He will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. For thus says the Lord to me, As the lion or the young lion growls over his prey against which a band of shepherds is called out and he will not be terrified at their voice nor disturbed at their noise. So will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill like flying birds. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected. O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. And the Assyrians, the Assyrian will fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of men, will devour him. So he will not escape the sword and his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic and his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So the book of woes continues here. You remember it's marked by these opening statements of woe. Chapter 31, no different. Uh, Speaking to Israel, he says things that are fairly obvious here. You you thought you could rely on the horses and the chariots of of Egypt because they're strong and they're fast. And you didn't look to the Holy One, though. You didn't look to the truly strong one. But then in verse 2, he assures them that he's wise enough to overcome their plans and bring them to disaster and both them and their adversaries, for that matter. And after all, isn't it God who brought the adversaries there to begin with? So the, the irony here is God created this problem, if you will, for the nation of Judah as a result of their sin. And he, therefore, is the best one to solve it. And even though they've gone after something they think will be better, he'll show them that it will come to nothing. He will obviously frustrate their efforts. The Egyptians never did provide any kind of uh, military help against Assyria, as we've already said. And he mocks them a little, says they're men, not gods. The way I like to put it is you've got a God problem. So why are you hiring men? to solve your God problem. You should go to God. And of course, they aren't listening. And God promises to prevent the Egyptians from offering any help because, look, it's not that He expects them to be destroyed. This is, this is an interesting thing to make note of. He is telling them, I'm not going to let Egypt help you. Now, you might draw from that a conclusion that it's because He wants to see them punished. He wants to see them succumb to the Assyrians. Almost like a petulant child, right? You won't come to me for help? Fine. I'll take my ball and go home. I'll keep the Egyptians from doing any good. And meanwhile, the Assyrians are just going to run all over you. But no, that didn't happen. He ended up stopping the Assyrians, right? See, the problem wasn't that he was trying to uh, prevent them from getting help. The problem was he was the one who wanted to do the helping so that only he had the glory as a result of the helping. We'll see this later in Isaiah when we look at the time that Christ returns and battles against the armies in that future time, the time that this is picturing. And he says exactly the same thing about Christ. Christ coming from Botswara, remember? We read this already once. His clothes stained in blood from that battle. And Isaiah looking at him coming from Botswara to Jerusalem says, who is this stained in blood? And and Jesus' reply essentially is, I fought this battle by my own arm. There was none there with me. I fought it on my own. And that's a curious statement. But now knowing that this scene is a foreshadowing of that scene, you can see the parallel. God in this day says, I'm not going to accept Egypt's help because I want to be a one to fight it alone for my own glory so that I become your protector. And likewise, in that day, Christ fights the battle alone without any appearance of help because none is obviously needed. So that's chapter 31. We got to recognize these as they go by. We click them off. Chapter 32. He draws a contrast here between the present day unfaithful leadership, which we've seen several times already and a future time when the nation will be ruled in perfection. So this is a contrast, not a comparison. All you English majors pay attention. Isaiah 32, verse one. Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Now, I'm pausing there because there was an interesting reference at the beginning. You may have noticed. It may have caught your ear. We are looking now at a time when a king will reign righteously. Millennial kingdom, right? We know just from the opening, Isaiah has done what he does commonly, right? He moves between his major themes back and forth effortlessly, 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 without much effort. So we know he's back to talking about the millennial kingdom, about the Lord's return, now about his rule on earth. But did you notice the curious detail in verse 1? Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Okay, wait a minute. I know about the king. What's this prince thing? Where are they coming from? Who are they? Well, we know that these are not the same person. In other words, this is not simply a matter of him using a synonym. The king will rule and the prince will rule. And and you know, sometimes scripture will do that. Use two words to describe the same thing as a kind of poetic form. But this is different because look at verse 2. Each will be like a refuge from the wind. That's a reference there to each, meaning there's more than one person in view here. So we have a time of ruling in which there is a king, but there's more ruling than just the king. Now, many of you would already know the answer and say, well, we know that the church rules with Christ and that the apostles rule and so on. That's true. But does that mean we're all princes? Is that just the term for anybody? Well, it, it might be, but I don't think that's the intent. I think it refers to the senior leadership, if you will. And in particular, one man, maybe more than the rest. Uh, there is, in fact, in this day in the millennial kingdom, according to scripture, the king, Christ himself ruling and a prince and specifically one man who gets the title prince. This is plural, so it could be intended to refer- reference, you know, more than one person beyond Christ, of course. But the very least we can say about what scripture provides is there is one who is prince if you want to turn with me, or you can or you can listen. But I'm going to go to Ezekiel for a second. Ezekiel 34. And so if you want to turn there, uh, you're only going to have to turn two books to the right from where you are. But Ezekiel 34, 21. Listen to him describing the same period of time, the Millennial Kingdom, the Messianic Kingdom, and listen to the description Ezekiel gives in 34, 21 about that time. He says, because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak of your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, that's referencing how God has scattered the nation. So, in 21, he's finishing a description of how God scattered them for their disobedience. We know that scattering started in AD 70 and continued until 1948 when they started regathering. Then in verse 22, he begins the regathering. He says, therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season, and they will be showers of blessing." I included some of that additional uh, detail at the end there just to confirm for you. We're talking about the Messianic Kingdom, the time when Israel is secure in their land. But it's that middle part I read, of course, with David, the prince among them. It's, it's understandable that David will be there, right? David is a believer. He's called a, a man after God's own heart. We should expect, just as for us, he will be resurrected. He will be there in his resurrected form, living eternally. I mean, certainly we're not surprised to hear David is there in the Messianic Kingdom. But consider this, if David is there, what would you expect David to do? He's been promised when he was alive to reign on a throne eternally. We know that pictures Christ as well, but it doesn't make it less true for him personally. The fact that he's picturing Christ doesn't remove from the reality of what he has been promised personally, that he would rule again and rule eternally. Now, he can't rule in such a way that he is over Christ. That's understandable. We understand that without any trouble. So that leaves him a role under Christ, like we all will have. And in light of how important David apparently is to Christ and to the, to the plan God has for that time, he is called him prince, a one who rules underneath the authority of Christ. You could say he is Christ's right-hand man in the government of the Messianic kingdom. As you ponder that, just consider the honor that goes with that. This guy was a shepherd boy. Right, And he got pulled out of the field with no reason whatsoever except that that's who God had appointed. And he's being appointed in that moment to something that was grand enough, right? King of Israel at some point in the future. But he was being set on a path that makes him Christ's right-hand man of government for all, human, for all humanity in the, in the thousand years of, of Christ on earth. What a privilege that is. You, you just, that to me, in that man's one experience, is such a great example of what grace really means. You cannot explain his prominence and what happens to him and and all that God has showered on him by anything else except unmerited favor, right? There's no logical explanation. And really, the same is true for all of us. I mean, we may not find ourselves in that position, in that sense of of what God has given to David. But in, in just about every other sense, eternally speaking, we share in the same privileges and have the same kind of unmerited favor being showered upon us. But it's just really remarkable to think of David for just a moment because his life really puts flesh and bone to the reality of what grace really means. That you're not just saved for, for the sake of God's glory and faith. That's enough as, as it is. But that he is chosen from the lowliest position, elevated to the highest position, and that position carries over until he is right there under Christ as prince. As I said earlier, my suspicion is Isaiah's not trying to be specific to David here, but to the fact that there are governmental positions under Christ and he wraps them together in the term princes I mean, for example, we know, as, as you know already in of the Gospels, that the twelve apostles are given the right to rule over the twelve tribes. Uh, you know, that term would certainly seem sensible to apply to them, princes over the tribes, if you will. I, I don't think he means it in any greater sense than that, but it, seeing it in the text triggered in my mind the memory of David. I thought this was a good place to go off and look at that for a moment, just to show you that there is real structure, real authority uh, to the government that Christ stands up in that day. So if you will, you could look at your time on earth in the role you play now in ministry, whatever that role is, however God has called you in your life, whatever you feel you're called to do, your faithfulness in that mission, in light of what Christ said, those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much, this short-term opportunity to serve in whatever walk you've been given is your internship. And if you've ever been an intern, you know how that works, right? You don't get paid very well, if at all. It's very insecure because the job's only going to last a very short time and it's more of really just training, but there's a hope. There's a promise that if you impress them hard and well enough with what you do, there's some payoff for you, maybe in a permanent position. You know, the best, hardest working people in the company are the interns because they got everything on the line and, and they're working to, to impress you. That's really the model for Christian living. If you could see yourself in an internship of sorts, not that you don't, quote, get the job in the end. I mean, if you draw out the analogy too far it gets silly. But just in the simple sense of showing Christ that you can be faithful with a little, such that he will entrust you with much. I've had people say, well, you know, I really don't want to be in management. And I'm telling them, that's not really what you're supposed to think as a Christian. You, you, you seek for that privilege because God tells you to, and you have to trust him that you'll want it when you get there. You know, there are some who would say, I'd rather just stay in the background. I don't want to have one of those big, important roles in the messianic kingdom. Uh, well, if I read Scripture right, that's not the perspective to take into our walk, right? It's to be someone who honors Christ in our service such that he can turn to you as a good and faithful servant and elevate you in your authority come the kingdom time. Okay, so back to, back to chapter 32. Pick on verse 3. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly, No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans and by noble plans he stands. As you look down the rest of this opening section here, knowing we're talking about the Messianic Kingdom, look at the proof text here, the the additional pieces of evidence that demonstrate we are looking at that time. In contrast to what Isaiah said already about Israel, that their eyes would be blinded and they would not know the truth for as long as God had them under judgment. And remember the reason why he does that to them? It's so that they will not avoid the judgment, right? So he says, you're appointed to judgment, so I'm not even going to let you know it's coming. You won't understand the words of these prophecies so that you'll walk into these periods of judgment unexpectedly or without any expectation and then you'll go through them. But then, in verse 3, those eyes, they will no longer be blinded and those ears will start hearing again. That's a proof that the judgment period is ended. And then verse, the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. What is that a reference to? The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly stammering is a, is the inability to speak properly right so if somebody is characterized by that what are we saying they are unable to do properly speak spiritual truth those remember there is a bunch of there's a bunch of prophets and seers who were said you will you will prophesy but you will you will see but you will not know what you're saying or you not be able to speak the truth he's saying he will unstop that ability to know spiritual truth to so be able to speak clearly it's a it's a euphemistic way of saying Spiritual knowledge returns to them in fullness. And then verse 5. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. So, what's interesting to start with is, this is the Messianic Kingdom, right? There are still fools in the Messianic Kingdom. He wouldn't have any reason to say this. He, He didn't say, there will be no fools. Or he didn't say, all fools become noble or whatever. He says, no longer will the fool be called noble. There is perfect distinction. There is no longer any inability to distinguish the true noble, which in this case must mean the regenerate, perfect, incorruptible believer. I'm arguing here that this would be not only the nation of Israel, but the church. Those who've stepped into the Messianic kingdom in perfect form, the noble. From those who are the fool, meaning those who have yet to know the Lord and are living in that world naturally. Men and women who've been born in that world, as we've said, will happen carry the sin of Adam, and therefore, in many cases, are still unbelievers. They are the fools of their day, but we'll know the difference. And that makes perfect sense, right? When you have incorruptible, immortal, resurrected beings, compare that to the normal, natural flesh of the descendants of Adam, there'll be no distinct, no, no trouble detecting who's who. In that day, the distinction is made perfect and maintained. No longer will one be called the other, For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied. In other words, these foolish people retain their abilities to do all the wrong things, even in that day. And this, of course, we've studied already. They eventually form that army at the end of the thousand years that the enemy can deceive and try to use against Christ one last time. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander. And even though the needy one speaks what is right, but the noble man devises noble plans. So it's just drawing that distinction out all the more. Then verse 9. Now Isaiah says they should begin their mourning. This is such a kind of a touching but sobering section as we finish the chapter. He says, verse 9. Rise up, you women who are these, and hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Within a year and a few days, you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for the vintage is ended and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city. Because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace. and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places and it will hail when the forest comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, who let out freely the ox and the donkey. Always interesting when Isaiah gets on a roll like that, not it? He loves animal, loves agricultural and animal husbandry references and, and weaves it all together. And speaking to their women, I guess, because of the pathos of it all, right? The most vulnerable in the society have the most reason to weep in light of the coming judgment. And that's what he's doing here. He says, if only you knew what was coming, you wouldn't be living life with such normal ease. You would be mourning even now if you knew what was coming. The palace, he says, will be abandoned. He says it's a year and a few days, right? So this is referencing Assyria. A the palace will be abandoned, the crops will be ruined, the land will be devastated. These are all the effects of Assyria coming against the city. And, and he goes on to kind of you know, beat that out in, in more detail, just reiterating how bad it's going to be. But then in verse 15, he reminds them that once God is ready to pour out his Spirit on them, then they will experience justice and peace and confidence forever. What do we know that's a reference to? By now, we've been pretty well versed on this so several times. Where do we see this occur? Do you remember? He's talking about a future time of pouring out of the Spirit. Is this a, a contemporary issue? Is this something that happens during the time of Assyria? Zechariah 12? And I will pour out my Spirit on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that they will look upon me whom they pierced and mourn for me like they mourn for an only son. Remember that? This is a reference to how he restores the nation of Israel to faith on the last day of tribulation in their city as they're being sieged by the Antichrist. And in response to that outpouring of the Spirit, the whole nation of Israel that's left in Jerusalem comes to know the Lord as Christ as Lord and cries out to Him in the way that Psalm 80 describes. And then He returns for them in response to that cry. So, it's, it's just in passing here. And without that reference to Zechariah, we would all probably just glance over it and not know exactly what he means. But it's a clear reference back to that moment because of what he says follows from that. What follows from that is national repentance and national restoration. That's the effect of what we know happens at the end of tribulation. So this end of chapter 32 is is Isaiah wrapping up, if you will. Here's what you have coming. Woe to you for your unwillingness to trust in the Lord. And even in the midst of that, he still throws in a reference to the future, that there is a future day in which he will restore them fully. Chapter 33. I wish I was paid by the chapter tonight. Woe to you, chapter 33, verse 1. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him. And as, as soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. Now, who do you think Isaiah is talking about there? The destroyer reference would point us to... Satan would often be the one we give, but... But because we know that the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem is a picture of the Antichrist's siege of Jerusalem, Satan and Antichrist by that day are one and the same. But specifically here, we're talking about the work of that person on earth. So we're talking probably most specifically about the Antichrist. He who is treacherous. What was his treachery? What's his chief treachery of tribulation? Breaking the covenant he made with Israel that began tribulation. Tribulation begins with that covenant. Midpoint, he breaks it. So his treachery is principally that, while others did not deal treacherously with him. Who would the others be? That who did not. Th- yeah, another way to say did not deal treacherously is to say dealt honestly, in a trustworthy way. Who was dealing trustworthy with, in a trustworthy way with him that he in turn dealt treacherously to the Jews? Right. The Antichrist dealt treacherously with the nation of Israel who treated him fairly, or something to that effect. And he says, as soon as you finish destroying, which we know then refers to the way the Antichrist started to attack both Jews and Christians in that last day and was working his way toward destroying Jerusalem. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously with others, other, or with to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. Others here would be then the king of the Jews. Treacherous just meaning destroying him. All right. So. In verse 1, he pronounces woe. This is the only woe he pronounces against a single person in all of the woes within the book of woes. Just an interesting side note. Now, verse 2, Isaiah moves forward to revisit his descriptions of that moment when the Lord will free Israel from the Antichrist. So he describes now how someone will, quote, deal treacherously with the Antichrist, how Christ will deal with him. Verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning. Our salvation also in the time of distress at the sound of the tumult, peoples flee at the lifting of up of yourself nations disperse your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers as locusts rushing about men rush about on it. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high he has filled Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times a wealth of salvation wisdom and knowledge the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Behold, their brave men cry in the streets. The ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. The highways are desolate. The traveler has ceased. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He has no regard for man. The land mourns and pines away. Lebanon is shamed and withers. Sharon is like a desert plain. And Bashan and Kamel lose their foliage. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. You have conceived chaff. You have given birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like a fire. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut, thro- cut thorns which are burned in the fire. Again, a theme here that's, that's common to what we've seen, very familiar. Uh, I like the way it opens here. Verse 2, it's almost like a prayer. It's similar to the one that you see in, chapter, in uh, uh, Psalm 80, where the nation of Israel calls on Christ to return, as He does. And then verses 3 and onward is sort of a short summary of what we've already seen described elsewhere. In response to the prayer, the Lord answers. There's a sound of a tumult. Or that, that word just means a roar. The enemy scatters. God himself is lifted up. And the spoil, this is an interesting picture. He says, the, nation, uh, the nations that have gathered against Jerusalem see Jerusalem as their spoil. You know, the way to say it is, they've got them right where they want them. And at that moment, Christ comes and makes that collected army his spoil. So that's the sense here of your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, kind of piled up against the walls of the city. And then you see in verses 5 to 6, a familiar reference there to Christ's power to rule, of course, and more verses there kind of repeating the, the kind of destruction that's going to come upon the enemy forces as they're crushed and so on. And the Lord is raised up and their plans of destruction come to nothing. Now, to end the chapter briefly here, let's consider some of the details Isaiah offers of that time. As you run through verses 13 on to the end of the chapter in verse 24. As we look at that, I want you to look at the details here that he offers around that time. Now, I'm going to continue to read through it. As you notice, as we've done all night tonight, fairly quickly. I'm trying to do that out of consideration for the fact that you've gone through so much of the book with me at this point. Stopping at each one of these verses is unnecessary, I would assume. If for nothing else, the picture is, is pretty complete. So look at these details as we go, and we'll say a few things about them at the end. Verse 13. You who are far away and hear what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed. And shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue which no one understands. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation, a tent which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there the majestic one, the Lord, will be for us, a place of rivers and wide canals, of which no boat with oars will go, and on which no mighty ship will pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle hangs slack. You cannot hold the base of its mass firmly, nor spread out the sail. And then the prey of an abundant spoil will be divided. The lame will take the plunder. And no resident will say, I am sick. Hallelujah. The people will dwell there, will be forgiven their iniquity. You know, Isaiah has done this time and time again. When he talks the judgment moment, he follows it with what comes next, the messianic kingdom. And he'll come back to talking more about how the Antichrist is destroyed. Then he can't help himself. He just flows right into the Messianic kingdom again. It's like everything he does looks forward into that moment because that's the ultimate fulfillment of so much of what is coming for the nation of Israel and then again for you and I. Here we have more detail. The way I've approached these every time we've gone into them and again tonight is not to repeat what we know but to highlight what's been added because he typically adds something new. And sure enough, tonight there's a few new pieces in here. So... He talks with, at the beginning here, you who are far away and hear what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. Did you notice there's two groups there? Again, in keeping with the fact that this kingdom is populated by both sinful people and sinless immortal people. Those who are far away would have to be those who are still yet not believers, but have made their way into the kingdom through some other... You know, our, our, obviously, we've said already, everyone comes into the kingdom a believer, but the reproduction process of the natural man brings back new people into the world who are sinful. Those people are far away. They're supposed to hear all of this and know it. Those who are near are the ones who he says, acknowledge my might. That sets up this conversation for being two groups of people present in this time. And that distinction is sort sort of the outline for the rest of the chapter. For example, in verse 14, he says, sinners in Zion are terrified. Here again, why do we have sinners in Zion? I thought there wouldn't be. Well, we know why. Natural men reproducing, creating more people who are always sinful in their nature and sometimes do not become believers. They tremble. They ask, who among us can live with the consuming fire? Now, we have said already, and I'll continue to say, there's a later part of Isaiah that talks specifically about what happens to the unbelieving natural men who live during this time. Where do they eventually go? How, do they finally get dis- how does their fate finally get decided? That comes up later in Isaiah, so I continue to push that off until we get there. Verse 15, he says, these who walk righteously and speak with sincerity, they have all these good things coming to them. And you see references all the way through 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. All of these are references to what the believer has coming to them or what the incorruptible have coming to them. I like verse 18. He says, your heart will meditate on terror. What? Why would I want to do that? Well, it's not exactly what it sounds. He says, your heart will meditate on terror, meaning you will ponder the fact that you don't see any of it. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? That's a reference to the way they would build the, the siege works, the battle works that are useful to breaking through the walls of a city. Or in other words, in modern day terms, you would say, where is he who counts out the bullets? Where is he who weighs out the gunpowder? Where is he who counts the guns and the cannons? Where are all the people who wage war? And therefore, where is terror? And it's rhetorical. The question is rhetorical because we know already from descriptions of the Messianic Kingdom, there is no war. When you have a perfect judge ruling on earth and the power to enforce all his judgments without any question, without any anyone challenging that rule, there's no possibility for war to break out. We have war now because we have nations who don't have an authority above them who can settle the argument. So they battle one another, right? War is the natural consequence of sin in men's judgments. But a perfect sinless government doesn't have that problem. So there is government because there is still sin to govern over, but there's no war. And as a result, the, we ponder it in the sense of we wonder where it is. Specifically in Isaiah, say the people of Jerusalem are promised that they will not see one person with a strange tongue, meaning enemies at their gates, like Assyria, for example, that they'll all be gone just as God has promised, and that they can expect a time of peace and security, a city that will never be folded up like a tent, and so on. One last piece of commentary, and then we'll be done tonight. He mentions some geography here at the very end. And particularly as I was looking at the verses here, let's see, verse 21. "The The city in this time will be a place of rivers and wide canals. Not the Jerusalem we know today. And that's, in fact, exactly right. It won't be the Jerusalem we know today, not, not in, in the sense of what we see today. There's a considerably different geography in that time. You don't find it written out here so much, of course, except just in passing. You know, this reference to rivers and so on. You can see in Zechariah 14 and in Ezekiel 47, I think it is, there are extended descriptions of the, the Jerusalem of that time. Uh, there's a bit in Revelation but it's primarily in the Old Testament. Some of the features of that city. Do you remember? Uh, It's Ezekiel 47. Zechariah 14 is where you hear that there are rivers flowing out of the city, out of the temple. One goes to the east, one goes to the west. These are waters that are um, continually flowing out of the temple and and become wide canals, basically, of water that flow through the center of the city, outward from the temple. That's consistent with what Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 21. Remember the mountain itself that Uh, holds up the city. Remember, we've talked about this already in Ezekiel. It's a mountain that's 50 square miles wide at its top. 50 square mile plateau in which the city resides. The temple itself is a mile square. Remember these descriptions from Ezekiel? So the water is flowing out from there down the mountain somewhere. It defies even what Hollywood has produced. It's going to be a very interesting scene, uh, obviously. And no boat and no ships will pass on it. Meaning, it's not a river of commerce. These are waters that come out of the temple. They're flowing water. You know, water is often used in Scripture as a picture of God's uh, grace, mercy, and power flowing out. The Spirit is often pictured by that. This is probably a a metaphor in life of waters coming out from the temple. Living water. Not water you go and row, row a boat on. And from that place, the Lord is a lawgiver and rules the world. So. The repetition here has gone on and on to reinforce. Isaiah has a lot of that. I've tried to speed up when we see the repetition so that we don't get bogged down in it. When we come back next week, we pick up in chapter 34, and now we're getting into the history. If you were to look at your Bibles in front of you, it's chapter 34. There's still a little bit more of the prophecy coming out of chapter 34 and 35. Uh, we'll cover that relatively quickly in much the same way we did tonight. But you'll still see some interesting references as you glance down, things that we'll call out and we'll talk about. But then look at chapter 36. So we're just two chapters away from this. Chapter 36 begins a history period. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, this is the historical account of God fulfilling what he said he would do regarding Assyria coming against the city and then defeating them in the end. That's chapter 36 into chapter 37. This will change the tone of the book considerably when we get to those two chapters because those two chapters and even beyond into 38 and into the the 40s focus in on Hezekiah, who's a very interesting study. Just kind of to bolster your your patience in in this long study we're engaged in. First thing to note is there are 66 chapters in the book. We just did 33. We're halfway done with the book of Isaiah tonight. The second thing to note is We've been in an extended section where a lot of the chapters had a similar theme, repeated similar themes, and so that, that's good, but at the same time, I know it can test our patience as a student. We feel like we've got that already. Let's move on. That's natural. Uh, the good news is we're almost out of that period, and we're into a wholly different part of the book that for many, several chapters now will be very history-oriented, almost like studying First Samuel or First Kings or something of that sort, well, we'll be studying people and events, and it will really draw us into the history of the moment, so it'll have a different tone for quite a while as we go through those sections, all right? And we'll start that next week. We'll get to um, uh, four and 35 pretty rapidly into giving ourselves some time to get into uh, 36. Heavenly Father, we do pray for uh, a continued heart and patience to study in a, in a book like Isaiah. Father, we, we count all Scripture as sacred and all Scripture, Father, as edifying. And we know, Father, that you have prepared every word just as you would desire. And, Father, our nature is such that we want to know the end of everything even before we begin it sometimes. And in the course of this study, as it has taken time and effort to move through it, I'm sure, Father, we've all had a moment or two when we thought it's a a study that we can bring to an end more quickly than we should. I do pray, Father, for that patience to continue and for us to, to know that there is still so much more that you have prepared for us in this book and that we would give ourselves over to it in a diligent way. Thank you, Father, for the time and the gathering. We pray that uh, many who are not here tonight could return. We pray that we would continue to serve here as you give us opportunity. And uh, send us away from here, Father, ready to, to, to preach the gospel in one way or another. And if, if necessary, Father, that we would use words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.